God, we thank you for today. We thank you for the sunshine. Lord, we thank you for this building that protects us from the elements, for heat, Lord, for microphones, for instruments, for music. Lord, we have a lot to be thankful for. Um, but we're thankful for your word. So Lord, I pray that as we um, read your word, as I preach your word this morning, I pray that we're all free from distractions, that we could focus our next time together on your word, on your truth, that if there's anybody here who believes in Jesus as our Lord and Savior but needs joy, needs encouragement, needs hope, I pray that the Holy Spirit will give it to them. If there's anybody here that needs conviction of their sins, convictions for what they've been doing, I pray again the Holy Spirit will do that. And Lord, if there's anybody here that doesn't know you, Jesus, as their Lord and their Savior, I pray that they'll be convicted of their sin and cry out and profess you as their Savior. So Jesus, we come together, we gather together as your body, and I pray that you bless this time together in your word. And it's your name we pray. Amen. Amen. If you have your Bibles, you could turn back to John, John's Gospel. We're going to be continuing and going back into our series in John. We're actually up to John chapter 7. So we took some time during the Advent season away from this Gospel. And then last week and the week before that was, were more of like a New Year's uh, sort of message. But we're going to be back in, in the Gospel of John. So John chapter 7. And what I want to do is because it's been a few weeks, almost a few months since we've been back here, I want to give a little bit of a quick recap as to what we're doing throughout John's Gospel. And what we're doing is we're simply going verse by verse and we're looking at kind of two overall questions. Who is Jesus? Right? What do we learn about Jesus from these verses? And the second is, why does it matter? Right? You could have all the knowledge about Jesus, but if you don't get that second one, why is it important? Why does it matter? Right? It is important. It does matter. So, so far, a little bit of a recap, just a few highlights from each chapter. In chapter 1, we learned a couple of truths. We learned that Jesus is God eternal. That Jesus has always existed. He was not created. He didn't come into existence. He is eternal. He is God who came down from heaven in human flesh and lived and dwelt among his creation. We also looked at, he was pointed at by John the Baptist as the Messiah, as the coming Messiah, the one promised in the Old Testament. John the Baptist cried out and called him, Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. Chapter 2, Jesus performed his first miracle. He turns water into wine. And then in that chapter, he did many other signs all throughout Jerusalem and many, many, many people were drawn to him. And that might sound, wow, that's great. He's getting a good following. A lot of them were superficial. They only believed or they were only wanting to see Jesus for the, for the miracles, for the amazing things. And then in chapter 3, we have a personal inside kind of view in a private conversation between Jesus and a Pharisee named Nicodemus where Jesus claims that all who believe in him will have eternal life. That's a pretty bold claim. If I make that claim up here, I hope you'd say, David, you're crazy and you're probably not supposed to be preaching anymore, right? If I said, all who believe in me will have eternal life, you'll never die again. But in that conversation, Jesus reveals who he is, his mission. In chapter 4, Jesus claims that only he can give living water. And whoever drinks of the water he gives will never be thirsty. There's this eternal quenching or eternal satisfaction when it comes to Jesus. He then reveals himself for the first time publicly, not to his fellow Jewish people, 
but rather to a Samaritan woman. And there's hatred between Samaritans and Jews, so much so that there's racial division and racial hatred. But Jesus, for the first time publicly, reveals himself to a Samaritan woman who's all alone at the well drawing water. And that conversation with her then leads her whole town to believing in Jesus. At the end of that chapter, Jesus does another miracle as he's going about his way. An official, someone important, comes up to Jesus and says, Jesus, my son is dying. And what Jesus does is he just speaks the word. He speaks it out, and over miles and miles away, the official son is healed. He's saved from death by a word that Jesus said. Then in chapter 5, it starts off with Jesus healing a man who is lame, a paralytic man at the pool of Bethesda on the Sabbath day. Right? It, 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 on what day is important? On the Sabbath day. He begins to be persecuted by the Jewish leaders because not of what he did, but again, the day that he did it on. And they're looking to start to kill him and plotting. Jesus then makes a defense of his authority. In the second half of chapter 5, there is so much rich theology and doctrine that highlight that Jesus is God. That Jesus' will is the same of the Father's will. There's a complete unity and oneness between the Son and the Father. He makes a defense. He also says that he can give life, that he executes judgment, that Jesus is worthy to receive honor and worship, same as the Father receives honor and worship. And what he's saying by that is, I am God. Worship me as God. In chapter 6, where we were a few weeks ago and left off, Jesus continued to heal the sick. He preached the good news. He multiplies food for the hungry crowd. He then exercises his complete authority over nature. He walks on water towards his disciples when they're in the Sea of Galilee. He calms the wind and the waves as soon as he enters into the boat. He then claims to be the bread of life. And what this claim is, is he's claiming to give eternal satisfaction for hungry souls for all who come to Jesus. And once again, at the end of that chapter, Jesus claims to give life. That's a common theme. Almost in every chapter, there's this claim of Jesus where he says, I give life. All who come to me have life. And he says, all who have communion with me, all who partake and eat my flesh and drink my blood, have an intimate relationship following me, have life. And we ended chapter 6 with a crowd of over 10,000, it's believed to be about 15,000, 15 to 20 people, they were following Jesus because of his miracles, and then they were following Jesus because they wanted more food from him, and they wanted to see more supernatural things, Yet at the end of chapter 6, we see them grumbling and complaining, and they all walk away from Jesus. At the end of this chapter, only 12 remain, his 12 disciples. And then Jesus highlights, and John gives us an insight too, that even out of the 12, one is going to betray him, and that's Judas Iscariot. So right now, we're about to start chapter 7, and I had to do a little bit of groundwork to, to remember where we've been. But we get a little bit of a time jump in John's Gospel. Between chapter 6, and we're about to read in chapter 7, about six months have passed that John doesn't record anything about. The feeding of the crowd was in chapter 6, and that was around Passover time, which was about springtime. And then we'll read in the first couple of verses here that it's time for something called the Feast of Booths, or the Feast of Tabernacles. And that's what Keith was reading from Leviticus, the statute, the law, that was given to Moses by God for the people of Israel. And that happens about early, uh, early October, late September, around their harvest time. And for Matthew and Mark's Gospels, we can fill in this time gap of what's going on. Jesus remained up north in Galilee. 
If you remember, as we've been looking throughout John's Gospel, Jesus goes up here to Galilee, then he goes down to Jerusalem. He's up here, he's down here, he's up here. But now he's hanging up in Galilee, and he's doing a few things. He's, he's healing the sick. He's casting out demons. He actually feeds another crowd of thousands of people. But he also spends an intimate, private time with his disciples. He spends time training them, teaching them, discipling them during these six months that John doesn't record. So again, chapter 7, right now, it's a pivotal turning point in John's Gospel because it's gonna, we're going to see a transition in the ministry of Jesus and how people viewed him and the crowd and the leaders and how everybody is eventually right, hating him and they're going to put him to death. You're going to see more death threats mentioned, more plotting, more scheming start to increase against Jesus and his ministry. You'll even notice more conflict, more friction between Jesus and the Jews. So again, as we read these, these, these 24 verses from John chapter 7, it follows a bunch of back and forth conversations. And I understand, I was actually talking to Stephanie, I kind of joked with her saying, you know, this might not be the most applicable driven sermon, but what this is setting up is it's giving you context and you're going to be seeing a few different people and their lack of belief in Jesus through these different conversations that he has with them. And really it's setting up to when Jesus is going to declare to be, I am the light of the world. And where he also says, if, if anybody drinks from me, they'll never be thirsty. He makes that claim again, all during this feast, the Feast of Booths in the temple in Jerusalem. So I know it might be a little drier than normal, but I'll, I'll try my best to, to give some applications and some, some helpful tips as we go through these verses. But there are three things I want to highlight. If you have your notes, you can follow along, but I'll give you the blanks. The first thing we're going to see is the unbelief from Jesus' family. I don't know if you knew that. Jesus had family. The unbelief from Jesus' family. The second thing we'll see is the ignorance of the Jewish crowd. The crowd. The third thing we'll see is man's perversion of the law. Man's perversion of the law. So let's read John chapter 7. I'll start at verse 1 and we'll go to verse 9. Let's read this together. After this, Jesus went about in Galilee. He would not go about in Judea because the Jews were seeking to kill him. Now the Jews' feast of booths, or feast of tabernacles, was at hand. So his brothers said to him, Leave here and go to Judea, that your disciples also may see the works you are doing. For no one works in secret if he seeks to be known openly. If you do these things, show yourself to the world. And then John kind of interjects here and says this, For not even his brothers believed in him. Verse 6, Jesus said to them, his brothers, my time has not yet come, but your time is always here. The world cannot hate you, but it hates me because I testify about it, that its works are evil. You go up to the feast. I am not going up to this feast, for my time has not yet fully come. After saying this, Jesus remained in Galilee. And as I mentioned earlier, Jesus, for these six months, he's hanging around in Galilee because he knows that the Jewish leaders are actively looking to kill him. They're seeking to silence him. And John tells us again as the Feast of Booths. It's about, now it's the fall. And, and, and Keith read a little bit, and I did talk about the Feast of Booths last year, but I just want to give a little bit of a highlight and recap here. It was a seven-day celebration at the harvest time that the Jews would go and make temporarily, temporary dwelling places outside their houses. So really, it was, it was kind of like ancient camping. So some of you might be like, oh, 
I would not like this feast. Others, I know like Pat would be like, yeah, let's do this. Let's, let's do this all, all month long. For seven days, they would dwell. They would live in these temporary shelters they would build. It was to remind them of their ancestors' time in the wilderness and the faithfulness of God that he provided for them, that he led them, that he protected them, that he fed them in the wilderness. And then on the eighth day, there would be this massive celebration. Not only was it a time of looking back, but it was also believed to be a time of looking forward. The people's minds would go here, but they'd also look forward to the coming of the Messiah and how the Messiah would gather all the descendants of Abraham and how he would revive the Hebrew nation. So it was this massive celebration. It was one of the three feasts that were required by all male Jews who lived within 15 miles of the temple in Jerusalem to go and to celebrate. So if you lived in that 15-mile radius, you had to go if you were an adult Jewish male. Again, Jerusalem, the city, and also the temple, it would be packed to the brim. There'd be so many more people there because of the celebration. And there were also people living all over the place outside. So the first thing we see in this conversation, we're going to see the unbelief of Jesus' family. Jesus had siblings. Now, they were half-siblings. They're mentioned in the Gospel by name in Matthew 13. Their names are James, or the ones listed here are James, Joseph, Simon, and Judas. Not Judas Iscariot, but Judas is a common name. In Mark chapter 3, his own family thought that he was crazy. As Jesus is making these claims, doing these miracles, his own family thought he was, he was nuts. He was out of his mind. They didn't believe in who he was and who Jesus reveals himself to be. It's not until after Jesus' death and resurrection that we can know for certain that two of his brothers came around to believe in who Jesus says he was. Now, his brother James wrote the book of James. His brother Judas wrote the book of Jude. And if you want to know what they thought about their brother, you can read the, the, those books, but I'll just say this. They believed in him as their God, as their Lord, as their Savior. And that was after Jesus died on the cross and rose again. As we get back to John's Gospel, we see in verse 3 that his brothers are telling Jesus, they're giving him some brotherly advice. You know, Jesus, this is what you really should be doing. And to simplifying it, this is what they're saying. Jesus, doing all of your miracles, all of your teaching, all of the supernatural, all your signs and works up here in Galilee, you know, it's really not going to make a big difference. If you really are who you say you are and you're really doing all these things, then you should go to Jerusalem and go right now because you go there to the people, to the temple of the Lord, but not only that, it's going to be packed, filled with people. Right? Do all of this the world needs to know if you are who you say you are. And if you notice in verse 5, we do see their heart. We do see the intention of, of, of their heart and what they believe. It says they didn't even believe in him. Now, some theologians and some commentators, they've speculated maybe they're egging Jesus on, maybe they're teasing him. You know, oh yeah, Jesus, if you're really the Messiah, then you go to Jerusalem and do everything down there. Then let's see if you really have the guts to do it in front of your own people in the middle of the temple, in the middle of the, in the, middle of the feast. Maybe. Some also think that they're acting like his campaign manager. Right? Jesus, we know better than you. What are you doing? Why are you, doing, why are you up here in Galilee? Go to Jerusalem. Go to the people. Do it this way. Think of all the people who will hear and see everything you say and do. 
Think about how political and militaristic power you're going to get with all these people here. They're going to be excited with the feast and we're going to overthrow the Romans. Or maybe simply his brothers were still curious. They were still doubting. They were still unbelieving and that fueled this statement, right? Jesus, if you are who you say you are, do this this way in this location at this time and then maybe we'll believe you. But the sad truth is that not even his own family would believe him. And if you notice the words and connections that Jesus makes in verse 7, let's look at verse 7. He says, the world cannot hate you. The world cannot hate you because it hates me. Or sorry, but it hates me because I testify about it that its works are evil. Let me just say this. The world loves those who reject Jesus. And they hate those who believe in him. For whatever reason, it seems like that teachers, political figures, friends, family, celebrities, culture, TV, movies, every, it seems like everybody and everything goes out of their way to hate Christians, to hate Jesus more than any other religious figure or religion. It's almost like this unfair treatment and condemnation and judgment if you say you're a Christian. Right? Once you say that, people, oh, you're, you're so judgmental, you're so this, oh, you hate this, you hate that. Right, as a Christian, yeah, that might hurt. Yeah, it might be, I don't want people to hate me. But we shouldn't be surprised by this. Jesus tells us that the world hates him and that the world's going to hate us if we claim to follow him. And this is why the world hates him. Because I testify about it that the works are evil. Jesus is saying a truth. The world is infected with sin. The world as a whole, right, speaking, matter of fact, it's evil. The Bible says that our natural heart condition before God intervenes right, is evil. Those who have not been born again, according to God's word, they follow Satan. Whether they want to admit it or not, they follow his influence. They follow his ruling. In John 12, Satan is called the God of this world, lowercase g, but the ruler of this world. From the beginning, Satan has been constantly tempting the world, tempting people, culture to follow his pride, to follow his authority instead of God's. He deceives the world. He blinds the world from the truth of the gospel. That's 2 Corinthians 4. He's a liar, and in Satan there's no life. There's only death and destruction. And here's why the world hates Jesus. Because acknowledging that he died for our sins is to acknowledge that we're not good. I don't know if you've, if you've thought about that. It is admitting that we're helplessly enslaved to sin and that we need a Savior to come and to rescue us. Right? When you profess faith in Jesus, it's professing that we have done everything wrong and we are evil, our heart's desire is evil, and we need to be forgiven for our sins. Right? And the Gospel is offensive. I don't know if you've heard or watched or shared the Gospel before, Right, but the gospel is offensive because it cuts right to the heart of the issue. It tells people that they stand guilty and they stand condemned before God remaining in their sin. No one likes to be told they're wrong. I'll be honest with you. When people tell me I'm wrong, my first thought is, no, you're wrong. Right, but that's usually in my head and I filter it. I'm like, okay, maybe I am wrong. Right? But more importantly, no one likes to be told they deserve death. When you share the gospel, that's the truth you're giving. Right? There's life in Jesus, but if you're not in Jesus, there's death. Right? So no one likes to be told they deserve death. 
But again, the beauty of the Gospel is this, that we have a God who loves us so much that He pursued us in Jesus Christ. He did all the work. Jesus took all the punishment and wrath in our place when He died on the cross. Because of Jesus' sacrifice, we have the free gift of eternal life and satisfaction for all those who put their faith in Him. The world gives death, but Jesus gives life. And if everything that I just said here is true, then there's an important fact that needs to be made about our lives. As a Christian, we should not look like the world. Let me say that again. As a Christian, we should not look like the world. Our lives should rather look like Christ. The way He talked with people, the way He treated people, the way He loved them, the way He called them out in sin in love to follow Him, it should all reflect Jesus. And I want you to just take a moment and think about that. Does my life reflect Jesus? Or do I look like the world? I think sometimes Christians try to have it both ways. We say, yeah, I believe in Jesus as my Lord and Savior, and I believe the, the Bible is, is almost completely true, but there are some things that might be dated, but, but I'm not willing to let go of this even though the Bible says that's a sin. I think Christians like to some, most Christians like to stay in this middle and this tension of, ah, well, the world says this, ah, and Jesus says this, ah. but when we come to Christ, the Bible says we're a new creation. We, the old is gone, it's passed away. We, we abandon that. We turn away and we follow Christ and His example. Right? Our initial thought is this. If we're going to say something, if we're going to do something, Whatever in life is this, what does God's Word say about that? I know what the world says, because the world always preaches its agenda through social media, TV, people, whatever. Right? It's easy to find what the world, just turn on whatever channel you want. But, what does God's Word say about this? And here's a, a spoiler alert, and I don't, know, I don't want to shock you, but the Bible and culture are very, have two very different dif- definitions of sin. Have very two different definitions of sin. And I want to think through this thought. Is my life, David, is my life glorifying God? Am I being obedient to His Word despite what the world says? And if we're not, then we ask for forgiveness and we repent. We turn away from ungodly living. We turn away from our sin and our behaviors and we pursue Jesus. The Bible says that we have confidence to draw near to the throne of God for grace. That He's faithful and just to forgive us of our sins. That even in our sins, we don't have to run and hide and be afraid that He's going to smite us at any moment. But rather in our sin, we turn and run towards the cross. And remember what He's done for our sin. That He died for it. And again, this conversation between Jesus and His brothers, it ends with Jesus remaining in Galilee. He doesn't join with His brothers as they go back to Jerusalem for the feast. And then if you look at verse 10, right? Verse 10 says this, But after his brothers had gone up to the feast, then Jesus also went up. Not publicly, but in private. And I want to hang out here for a few moments, and if, I want to encourage you, come to Wednesday this, this week, because we're going to look at this in more in depth. But this could get a little confusing. right? Jesus just told his brothers, I'm not going. I'm staying here. Now in verse 10, Jesus says, or he says, he went up. He went up to the feast. Does that make Jesus a liar? Does that mean that he changed his mind? Is there a contradiction in the Bible? 
The simple answer to this is no. And the more, again, time-consuming, and I want to have a, a whiteboard in front of me and show and, and map it out, is that Jesus uses another word for time here in verses 6 and 8. That's different from the other verses where Jesus says, my hour has not yet come, or my time has not yet come. Right? Throughout, throughout John's Gospel, Jesus makes it clear he's on a divine time schedule. That nothing's going to happen to him that's outside the Father's will. He'll say, my time has not yet come. He said it to his mother, Mary, at the wedding in Cana. He'll say it in John chapter 7, and we'll see that next week. And John uses this phrase, but the phrase he uses here, it's different than that. It's not talking about the divine timetable and schedule. Rather, it's the best time, the most ideal time. And I did a little bit of research, and usually, as, as Mark pointed out, actually during Advent season, a lot of times when you traveled, you traveled in groups of people. Right? In my mind, I always thought, oh, I guess Mary and Joseph were kind of all alone on the road, and you know, they were just kind of, it was a nice intimate, nice moment together, but they're probably surrounded by thousands of people. And if people are going to this feast, the, the roads are going to be busy. Jesus, if he goes, is going to be surrounded by a crowd of people that know who he is. Their intention, as we know from chapter 6, is to make him their king by force. They want a political king, someone who's going to overthrow the Romans. So it says Jesus, in his best ideal time, went up in private rather than the crowd. And come Wednesday, because I'm excited, I want to share everything as we look in these Greek words. Because again, someone might say, well look, it's a contradiction. Jesus said he's not going, and then he went there. See, the Bible's full of errors. No, you just have a lack of understanding in the context of what Jesus is talking about. So again, we're going to spend time on that, but I want to move on to the second point. The second point, right? as we just saw, there's unbelief in his family and his own brothers. But the second thing we're going to see is the ignorance from the crowd. In verse 10, we'll read, but after his brothers had gone up to the feast, then also Jesus went up, not publicly, but in private. The Jews were looking for him at the feast and saying, where is he? And there was much muttering about him among the people. While some said he is a good man, others said, no, he is leading people astray. Yet for the fear of the Jews, no one spoke openly of Jesus. Verse 14, about the middle of the feast, let me just pause there, Seven-day feast, the middle of the feast, about day three or four, the middle of the feast, Jesus went up into the temple to begin teaching. The Jews therefore marveled, saying, how is it that this man has learning when he has never studied? So Jesus answered them, my teaching is not mine, but his who sent me. If anyone's will is to do God's will, he will know whether the teaching is from God or whether I'm speaking on my own authority. The one who speaks on his own authority seeks his own glory. But the one who seeks the glory of him who sent him is true, and in him there's no falsehood. Has not Moses given you the law, yet none of you keeps the law? Why do you seek to kill me? The crowd answered, you have a demon who is seeking to kill you. Here we see the Jews, the crowd, and we see their continued ignorance in who Jesus is in three ways. The first is they're divided on Jesus. In verse 12, it says there's much muttering, there's much grumbling, there's much talk about Jesus. He's the talk of the feast. right? Some saying, he's a good man. Others saying, no, he's a heretic. And yet it says the fear of the Jews, no one spoke openly about him. So again, the Jewish people are standed, or they're standing divided on who Jesus is. 
Eventually, they're all going to be on the same page to reject him and to kill him and crucify him. But right here, there's division. Right? Does Jesus speak the word of God? Is what he says good? Is he a good man? Or is he a blasphemer sent from the devil? We see that the people kept their opinions to themselves because there was a fear of the Jewish leaders and how they might be treated if they opposed their Jewish leaders. The Jewish people would not want to contradict the Pharisees, the Sadducees, the chief scribes, the chief priests. They wouldn't want to contradict their opinions publicly because the consequence could be excommunication from the temple, which would mean you'd be cut off from Jewish life, from Jewish worship, from Jewish celebration and feasts. It's worth noting that neither of those statements of what they said about Jesus is true. It's completely true. He's not simply a good man. We learn from John's Gospel, he's God incarnate. He's God himself. He's the Messiah promised in the Old Testament. And Jesus is not a heretic. Jesus never opposed God the Father's will. He perfectly accomplishes his will. In John 5, he says this, for whatever the Father does, Jesus says, whatever the Father does, the Son does likewise. Whatever I see my Father doing, I do. He's talking the oneness, the unity amongst the Father and Son and the Trinity. Again, the world today is not so much different. There's still division about who Jesus is. The Jews have rejected him as their Messiah. Some think that he's just a morally good man. Other people in the world think that Jesus is simply a prophet. or someone. Maybe, or, but he's not God, he's just someone who knows you know, nice moral good teachings. Some people think he was just a regular Jewish rabbi who had a couple of radical followers, and after he died, you know, then his followers kind of created this whole religion, and, and all they want is your money. But some also think that he's a completely made-up person, that he's not historically accurate. There was no such thing as a man named Jesus at all. Right? But the Bible is clear that Jesus is our Lord and our Savior. It's his own claim he was put to death on the cross because of that, and three days later, he rose again. In 1 Corinthians 15, and I'm going to read this verse, and I think most of you are going to be like, oh, I know this verse. Paul says this, For I have delivered to you as of first importance what I also received, that Christ died for our sins in accordance with the Scriptures, that he was buried, that he was raised on the third day in accordance with the Scriptures. Now if the world, or if anyone, if any pastor, or any mentor in your lives says anything less about Jesus than that, what that verse just said. They have a wrong understanding of who Jesus is, of who he really is. Jesus is our Lord and Savior. He is our God. Another way that the crowd showed their ignorance, so they're still divided. They've seen supernatural. They, they've seen healings. They've seen demons come out. They've seen amazing things, yet they're like, oh, I don't know yet. The second way is they questioned how Jesus can teach. In verse 14, it says, About the middle of the feast, Jesus went into the temple and began teaching. And that was a common thing for rabbis. The temple was huge. They'd pick an area, a rabbi would start teaching, a crowd would gather around them. It says, The Jews therefore marveled. They're in awe. How is it that this man, how is it that Jesus can preach? How is it that he learned the scriptures, that he knows it? He's never studied. He's had no formal rabbinic training. In today's language, it might sound like this. Jesus, where's your PhD? Jesus, where's your MDiv? What communications class did you take? Where, what Bible class did you take? Who trained you? 
Their lack of knowledge who Jesus is made them amazed how in their minds a, a man with no formal training could be such a skilled teacher. Someone who knew the Scriptures. And what is Jesus' answer? In short, he says his teaching is not his own. His teaching comes from God. The second thing in verse 18, he says he seeks the glory of God. He doesn't seek glory and credit for himself. In John 6, he said something similar, that Jesus has come down to do the will of the Father, not his own will, but the will of God the Father. So we see that they're divided. We see they, they have an ignorance and they don't understand how Jesus could really be this, this great teacher. And then lastly, we're going to see the Jewish leaders, the, the crowd of Jews that's in the temple, they're ignorant. They don't know that there's a plot against Jesus. Right, so that's the third one. The Jewish leaders, they, the plot against Jesus. Verse 19, Jesus says, Has not Moses given you the law, yet none of you keeps the law? That's a pretty bold statement to say to people to their face, you're guilty of the law, you're in sin. Right, that's pretty bold. Why do you seek to kill me? Then in verse 20, the crowd answered, You have a demon who is seeking to kill you. Jesus informs and questions the Jews why they seek to kill him. And in response, the Jews tell him he has a demon. Now, they're not literally, right? There's, there's sort of this, this kind of metaphor, this word here, saying, Jesus, you're paranoid. You're, you're crazy. You're a lunatic. What, you're, like, who, you're, who's looking to kill you? No one's looking to kill you. But we see in this moment that the Jewish people, they're unaware of the scheming that's going on from their leaders to kill Jesus. And that's why they ask, Who, why, who's, who's trying to kill you? Who's seeking to kill you? And I want to just hang, let's go back to verse 17. There's so much here, and I just want to stick on, on one verse right now. In verse 17, Jesus says this, If anyone's will is to do God's will, he will know whether the teaching is from God or whether I am speaking on my own authority. In a sense, Jesus is now challenging the crowd, saying this, If you would only humble yourselves before God's word, if you would pursue it, know it, obey it, practice it, worship the Lord, you'll, you'll know that my teachings are true. You will have discernment. You'll have wisdom if your heart belongs to the Lord. And they're just the key verses. If you want to write these down, I'm, gonna, I'm just going to read them off real quick. And I want you to notice if, if you can see the connection in these verses. Psalm 119, verse 2. Blessed are those who keep his testimonies, who seek him with their whole heart. Deuteronomy 4.29 But from there you will seek the Lord your God and you will find him if you search after him with all your heart and with all your soul. 1 Chronicles 28.9 This is David talking to Solomon. And you, Solomon, my son, know the God of your father and serve him with a whole heart and a willing mind for the Lord searches all hearts and understands every plan and thought if you seek him, he will be found. Jeremiah 29.13 You will seek me and find me when you seek me with all your heart. This connection here, a humble heart, one that is earnestly seeking the Lord, will find him. God, through the Holy Spirit, will give us ears to hear and eyes to see the truth of Jesus Christ. Satan loves to blind the world through lies. But God, through his mercy and grace, will bring light and bring forth the light of the truth of his word to those who are diligently seeking. It's just a simple truth. And as Jesus is challenging the crowd, your relationship with the Lord, 
you're, you're knowing His Word, you're studying it, you're obeying it, you're practicing of it, right? You're going to be able to discern what is false teaching and what is biblical teaching with a humble heart. And then the third thing, the third main point we see is man's perversion of the law. Verse 21. Jesus answered them, the crowd, I did one work, and you all marvel at it. Moses gave you circumcision, not that it is from Moses, but from the fathers, and you circumcise a man on the Sabbath. If on the Sabbath a man receives circumcision so that the law of Moses may not be broken, are you angry with me because on the Sabbath I made a man's whole body well? Do not judge by appearances, but judge with right judgment. Now Jesus goes back to the miracle he did in chapter 5 when he healed the lame man at the pool of Bethesda on the Sabbath day. And what he does is he makes evident the hypocrisy of what Jesus did and how the Jews are angry and upset at Jesus because of what he did on the Sabbath. So he compares them to what they do on the Sabbath. And the Sabbath day, it was a day that set apart for rest, set apart for the worship of the Lord. But over time, the Jews made it even more legalistic. They gave even more restrictions that were there's this exhaustive list that's permitted and what's forbidden work to do on the Sabbath. And we talked about that a few weeks ago. And there, are, there are some crazy things and there are crazy loopholes that the Pharisees and that the scribes created so that they could actually do work on the Sabbath by not breaking the Sabbath. So, so again, but, but what we see, they, the Jews practiced circumcision, which was one of their most treasured rites. Like R-I-T-E-S, not like, you have the right to remain, not that right, R-I-T-E, right. And this goes like this. On the eighth day of a newborn baby male, he was to be circumcised. So the eighth day, circumcision took place. But what would happen if that eighth day took place on the Sabbath day, right? They would do the work and perform the right. They would perform the circumcision. And the circumcision was a ceremonial cleansing of one part of the body, now, on the other hand, Jesus physically made well a man's whole body. If they themselves broke their own Sabbath laws, let me just say that, their own Sabbath, man's Sabbath laws, to circumcise, then how could they possibly be angry at Jesus for healing on the Sabbath? Again, we see the perversion of the Sabbath, of the law, by man-made traditions. And we'll continue to see that all throughout the Gospels where the law was given to reveal sin. It wasn't given to save. Rather, the Jews twisted it and they warped it and they tried to search and find salvation and eternal life in the law. They refused to allow the law to convict them of their sin and bring them to repentance. If we look back at 19, Jesus makes this claim, right? Has not Moses given you the law, yet none of you keeps it? You're, everybody is guilty of the law. So again, we see this perversion taking place. And then we end, and we'll end with this last verse. In verse 24, Jesus tells the crowd, Do not judge by appearances, but judge with right judgment. Jesus is telling the crowd not to judge by self-righteous legalism, to avoid superficial judgment, to ignore the fancy robes and the big hats of the leaders, of what they wear, but use discernment to find out who's teaching truth. Judge Jesus' claims and teachings 
with the righteous judgment, with God's Word, God's standard. And as Christians, I just want to end with this just thought. How can we practice righteous judgment? Let me stress that word, righteous judgment. Don't miss that word. Because you might say, oh, okay, I'm going to go out here and I'm going to start judging. No, no, righteous judgment. The simple thing is we compare everything to God's Word. Does what you see or hear line up with God's standard? Right, Christians, we, we are permitted to judge, but with righteousness, according to God's standard. Not our own, according to God's standard. Right, we're told we're to avoid casting judgment on appearances, on wealth, on status, on power, on popularity, on fame. That's James chapter 2. But rather, we're to keep our Bibles close to our heart and with discernment of God's standard, with righteousness, test everything against God's Word. So let me just tell you, there are a lot of pastors who don't preach the Bible. There are a lot of pastors who preach their own agenda, who have, th- who have twisted and are serving Satan. And what I'm saying is as a Christian, use righteous judgment, discernment, the Bible, to figure out if what is according to God's standard or what is according to the world and Satan's standard. Next week, we're going to get to pretty much a climax event of this feast. Jesus is going to cry out, If anyone thirsts, let him come to me and drink. Whoever believes in me, as the Scriptures has said, out of his heart will flow rivers of living water. And Jesus is going to be making that claim as you see the water basins being poured at the altar. And I can't wait for next week. We're going to talk about that. But let's pray. Lord, we're just so thankful as a reminder that we have been given life by Jesus Christ. That in love He came down and died on the cross for our sins. That all those who believe in Him have been purchased by His blood, by His righteousness. God, we thank You that You did everything when it comes to our salvation. That there's not a work to be made. We can't do enough good deeds. Lord, that we are helpless on our own. But the good news is, You came to be our Savior. You came to deliver us from our sin and the judgment and the wrath and the punishment of our sin. So Jesus, we're just thankful for Your Word. We're thankful for Your love. I pray, Lord, that as we leave here and head back to our jobs, work, school, wherever we go, that we use righteous judgment and discernment. That when we see the world saying that something's okay, we don't just blindly follow it, but rather we look to your word first and see if it's a sin. Lord, I pray for wisdom. I pray for discernment. I pray, Lord, as we sing this next song, that we can truly focus on the cross, be reminded of what Jesus Christ had done, that he paid it all for us as we celebrate communion and partake in communion together, I pray that we're reminded of the consequence of our sin, but also the love of God and His just and His forgiving nature, His grace and His mercy. So Jesus, we just pray this all in Your name. Amen.